Okay, so Ryan, what does your name mean? Uh, my name, I believe, means uh, the little king. I think. Uh-huh. Well, wow. I, I actually, uh, I, I, I think you're probably setting me up, so I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't say. But uh, we both, we, we both uh, grew up in like a conservative Christian uh, environment. Do you remember yeah. like going to like Christian bookstores when you were a kid and like? There would be like those little cards. The little that cards. Had, oh yeah, yeah. And and so I think that like the the quote unquote secular translation of my name I've always told was was the little king. But then in the okay. Christian bookstore it was kingly. And then I can't remember what the hmm. Bible verse was that was on the little card. Okay, yeah. I guess so. For a little context, I'm bringing this up because the the opening of of this episode we watched uh, starts out with in what may be the theme of this episode a storyline that is kind of brought up and then never revisited again for the rest of the episode. Yes, <laughs> but starts with uh, the doctor and Kess in sickbay talking with um, Ensign Wildman about baby names, mm-hmm. and uh, because the doctor's been trying to come up with a name for himself. Um, yeah. And and so whenever they suggest something, he like knows the etymology of that name or knows like some horrible person that had that name, and so kind of turns them off all these names. And the you know they talk about the the name they bring up is Cameron, which means like uh, a crooked nose, which I like made me look that up, which is actually apparently true. Um, is is what that word means or that name means? <laughs> and then that kind of got me thinking about like specifically like you said about these little cards that I had with your like name meanings. Oh, I accidentally scooped you. <laughs> yeah, no, but um uh yeah, no, Braden is apparently an old English that it's weird because I remember having like cuz I had more than one of these little cards and I there were some that would say it meant broad valley and some that would say it meant broad mountain, which I feel like are kind of opposite things. Like use the word yeah. to describe a thing, you would want a different word for those two things, but mm-hmm. it's apparently like an old Anglo-Saxon English. Yeah, that scene reminded me of um how in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it turns out that the, the most profane word, uh, it, like across across the galaxy, is Belgium. Yes, I I, I made a note of that too. I, I kid you not. I just said I'm thinking of naming my kid Belgium. Yeah, um, <laughs> because one of the I forget what one of the names they bring up. He's just like that is a nice name. However, in in uh, Bolian or Benzite or one of those, it's it's a, a very rude insult. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we we don't even need to do the show. We're just we just are on each other's wavelengths. Yeah. I, well, maybe that means we are perfect to do this show. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to Out of Contracts, the show where two friends who have seen part of Star Trek try to watch all of it in no particular order. I'm Ryan Howard, and I'm Brady Jungle. And uh, this this episode, we are talking about yet another Voyager episode. It's season two, episode 17 of Voyager. Uh, it's called Dreadnought. This episode was written by Gary Holland, and it was directed by LeVar Burton. So Jordy getting some directorial work in. I, I just looked this up uh, today, actually. Uh, LeVar Burton, at, at current, uh, at time of recording, has directed 29 episodes across various Star Trek series. Um Interesting. He's he not directed anything in the in the all access era, which I guess we should soon to be the Paramount Plus uh, era. They're, they're, oh, really? They're changing I didn't the name. Yeah, next 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 year, I think it's, they're changing the name to Paramount Plus because it's not it's not doing very well. So they're kind of trying to rebrand to 
I don't know if it's not doing very well, but it's just, it's not doing what they want it to be doing. And so yeah. they're, well, is there they're rebranding to Paramount Plus. Anything on it other than Star Trek? I feel like anytime it's advertised to me, all they show is just like Picard and Discovery. And you can watch old Star Trek too. Yeah. And- uh, so there, there actually are a few things on there. There's The Good Fight, which is the uh, spinoff to The Good Wife, which I've heard... Um, the Good Fight is actually quite good. It stars, I think it stars Christine Baranski. Uh, and Incidentally, there are far too many shows that have the good in their name. Yeah. Um. And, and then there's also the uh, the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone. Oh, that's right. Reboot or whatever you would want to call it, but I, which I really have been wanting to watch. I have not, I have not checked it out yet, but uh, I, I, I'm curious to watch that. But so there are a few things on there, but uh, yeah, he's uh, Lavar Burton is not directing anything in that period yet, but he still could because uh, good old Two Takes Rakes has directed a couple episodes, I think, in the of the live action shows. In yeah, the I know he did some a couple episodes of Picard. Uh, I know. I think he's done an episode of Discovery too, but I, yeah. I could be wrong. Anyway, so he directed this one and the Memory Alpha. Description for it is Voyager encounters a dreadnought, a Cardassian missile that Balana Taurus reprogrammed during her time in the Maquis. Even though lost in the Delta Quadrant, the missile still believes it is on a Maquis mission in the Alpha Quadrant, setting an intercept course with an inhabited world. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, you know, we kind of already started talking about this in the cold open, but, uh, you can, you can take us in, but, but, uh, there's a couple of like false starts where you think the episode's going to be about, well, you, you think the episode's going to have a B plot and then, it, and then they're like, mm, nah, we're just not gonna, no, no B plot. Yeah, we're just gonna, it's going to be about there, this. There's a number of things where they kind of like introduce or hint at or a thing. And then it's just never brought up for the rest of the episode. Like, I think the, the, the Kess, I don't think Kess even appears in the rest of the episode, and the Doctor doesn't until the very end. But yeah, so the episode um, kind of opens with this this random scene, and then they go into the real story, which is that uh, Voyager comes across this... Uh, first, they come across kind of this uh, destroyed... Like, the wreckage of a destroyed ship, and they start looking around to see what did it, and they find uh, this missile, which is... Uh, they kind of identify, you know, Chakotay and, and Bolana Torres recognize it because back when they worked for the Maquis, which is a, it was kind of a sort of a rebel, almost like paramilitary group back when kind of the Cardassians uh, were ruling over an area of, of the galaxy kind of by Bajor and that. But, um, but that uh, was kind of insurgents fighting against the Cardassians and sort of these freedom fighters. Um, but they were also sort of condemned by the federation because they would be their tactics were like too too violent or too extreme well so i believe too it actually it wasn't during the occupation that the maquis were formed right i guess Uh, it was i think it was after it was was after after. it was after the treaty because a lot of they were they were formed kind of to resist the cardassian uh like domination of their home worlds i think um where because like a, like a lot a lot of it has to do with like you know in the treaty between uh cardassia and uh and the federation uh they had you know there were some some various uh planets that exchanged hands and so like people had were forced to be were, were forced off of the planet had to resettle and that kind of a thing um and so i think a, a lot of a lot of that actually certainly they don't appear on the shows until the the treaty with the Cardassians, which is, I believe, toward the end of of uh, yeah. TNG, um, that happens. And so, so before the events of Voyager, both Bilana Torres and Chakotay were were in the Maquis, and they had captured this uh, this missile that was initially built by the Cardassians, and they um, specifically uh, Bilana completely reprogrammed it and 
redesigned it and tweaked it and everything and essentially redirected it and sent it to go and attack the uh, Cardassian base. Uh, isn't like a this is something that I was kind of confused about watching the episode because I believe that they say that it was going to like a, fu- uh, a fuel depot. Yeah, it was going to, it was going to a fuel depot, depot or some yeah. yeah, yeah, a fuel depot on Ash- Ashlon Five uh, is what it says. Which I I had some questions about this, but we'll we'll get into them okay. later on in the episode. But I was I was kind of confused by what like what she sent it to it go do versus what it is doing yeah so they had sent the it episode, to, to go back and attack the cardassians and then it got presumably um picked up by i guess the caretaker they say which yeah the caretaker seems to have like taken a lot of random things from the alpha like one specific area of the alpha quadrant a lot of detritus <laughs> yeah. and i don't like because wasn't the whole thing with the caretaker that it was taking life like it was taking life forms to like replace itself so i don't know why it would just grab a missile and bring it and then just kind of leave it floating around in the delta quadrant i don't know well maybe the the i think maybe the what we're, we're missing like the secret to, to to behind voyager is that the caretaker only takes stuff that is related to balana taurus yeah, right. because it takes balana taurus yeah and she's like one of the people that actually one gets, of, she, isn't yeah. she, she's one of the people who gets tested by him. And then she takes this missile, and in, we saw in the recent episode we watched... Uh, what was uh, that episode called? Equinox, um, right? Wasn't that the name of the ship? Equinox, yeah. yeah. It, we, as we saw in Equinox, it, it also took uh, Bolana right. Taurus' ex-boyfriend. Uh, so only only Bolana yeah, based be a very interesting uh, like, stuff theory to, to, go. to dig into. It's a, it's six degrees of Bolana Taurus. Uh, is that's that's the game? That's the caretaker's favorite game. <laughs> yeah, and so um, so yeah. So now this missile is in the Delta Quadrant, and they discover that it's actually targeted a specific planet in the Delta Quadrant that is uh, similar enough to the the planet where it was going to attack in the Alpha Quadrant that it thinks it's the same planet, and so it's going to go and attack this planet even though this is like a peaceful heavily populated world and so Bolana feels you know kind of personally like this becomes kind of her personal mission because she feels that you know she was the one who programmed this thing and now if it does go and blow up this world like all these people are going to die and it's going to be her fault directly because she was the one that that set this missile off and so mm-hmm and that's like the whole that's like the story of the episode basically is just like how do we yeah. get this thing to yeah, and you were kind of right. This. this episode doesn't really have any sort of B plot. Um, it's it's really just all like this is a very Bolana Torres heavy episode, um, and that's kind of all that that happens um, is just how they deal with this missile. Yeah, there's there's like two scenes at the beginning that seem like they're going to be a B plot about uh, Tom Paris suffering from depression or something. Yeah, uh, because he comes into a meeting late and he looks not very tidy. And then later on, he's talking to Bellana and he he says something about like I don't remember what exactly he says, but just about how he's like sad all the time or something. Yeah. I'm like, oh great, this is we're gonna have to hear about him being sad. And then that just nope, that just yeah, no. Talk about there's, it and there's again. like maybe one. I think at the very end or like close to the end at the climax there's where when Janeway's like evacuating the ship like they her and and Tom Paris like share a look or something that like seems like it's supposed to be significant I guess in relation to this and then yeah I don't know if I know sometimes with these episodes like they have a full like B or even C plot like made and written and just for time constraints 
end up cutting most of it. Um, and I don't know if that happened here or what, but the, yeah, that that also seemed to be really like they may, really at the start make a point of like something's going on with Tom Paris, and and then you never find out what like why he was late for this meeting or. I'm I'm guessing that that gets rolled into the serialization because there's also one scene with that guy yeah, who we've was, seen I was before. That too. Um, also radioing to uh, the Kazon who works with Seska and being like, hey, this yeah. is what's going on. Yeah, which again, when like, it happens, you think we'll is going to somehow and then... play into the episode. Because he's specifically like telling them, hey, there's this really powerful missile and you guys should try to capture it. And so I feel like when that happens, you think, oh, so the climax of this is going to be like, and then the Kazon come and try to capture it and mess everything up and that, and, and no, that just kind of, that never also gets brought up again in this episode. And yeah, he is somebody that I think we see, I remember seeing him in at least one other episode that we've watched where he's doing a similar thing just kind of shadily talking to the Kazon. Yeah, I think he's in the episode where um, all the Kazon like try to get together in that room and then uh, yeah. and then the, the other race of people try to shoot them and then it ends with Janeway being like, this is why we should never cooperate with anybody yeah. or make any compromises. Uh, I believe that's the, his other episode. But yeah, he must be a recurring little, little guy. Um, it's, at least, I mean, I don't know if you remember yeah. him, but I, I, this is, this yeah. is the only context I have for it. Uh, but yeah, so we now we've got we've got that stuff out of the way. Those are like the only scenes that, and like the doctor at the beginning being like, yeah, hmm, and that names. is something that so, I think at least earlier in the series is kind of a recurring like sort of running thread through some stories is like the doctor's trying to choose a name, and then I think it it either just gets kind of forgotten about or he just decides not to because um, he he makes it mm-hmm. seven seasons and it just being called the doctor. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but you, uh, yeah, so, so uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's all we have for like, the other stuff. So yeah, sorry, you, you can, you can continue. I just wanted to kind of uh, plop on those little parts. Yeah. I really didn't have, take very many notes for this episode. I have like kind of some overarching okay. stuff I want to talk about once we're kind of through with it. But sure. yeah, I, I, I don't really have a lot of like individual, uh, you know, notes about specific parts. So yeah, so then they kind of catch up with this missile and Bolana actually transports onto it and initially like kind of does some programming and sciencey things and and shuts it down. And then uh, she comes back to Voyager and then the missile reactivates and starts heading towards this planet again. And uh, and basically talks, you know, the missile has a this like artificial intelligence computer that talks that actually is like Bolana programmed it to talk like she I guess recorded her own voice or programmed it to speak in her voice um, for mm-hmm. the purposes of dramatic symbolism. Um, well, she's very racist against uh, Cardassians, and so she she yeah, says that she didn't true. want she didn't like hearing the Cardassians' voice. Yeah, but also just in the like for the story, it becomes very symbolic because I feel like Bolana's yeah. stories are kind of always like Bolana versus herself is the where that conflict comes from like she kind of hates all these aspects of herself and is always kind of you know in in conflict with her own heritage and her own past and that and so to have her be like arguing essentially against herself and this mistake that she's made in the past is kind of I actually thought it was kind of a nice narrative touch to like have that be the the symbolism there yeah, it's it's interesting. I feel like the episode kind of underplays or like kind of slow rolls what a terrible thing that she did to a degree. And I don't I don't I think that might be intentional because I think that like the the impact of it is still uh there, but yeah. it's it's yeah, it's it's interesting like if you if you like try to if you kind of like zoom out and like actually describe like what it is she did even before even before the like before it comes to the Delta Quadrant and starts attacking yeah. the innocent planet. 
it's still like pretty bad. And, and I and I'm someone who I guess I would I would call myself a, a McKee sympathizer a lot of the time on on these shows. Like having you see a lot of the McKee in in Deep Space Nine as well. And yeah. I'm definitely like sympathetic to a lot of what they're a lot of what they're trying to do. And I would say like ba- basically reprogramming a Death Star missile to go like blow up a planet is pr- like probably the most like evil thing I've ever seen anyone in the Maquis do by like a, a significant margin. Yeah. Although so. isn't that, I mean, isn't that kind of the, like s- sort of a, the, the whole thing with the Maquis is that like they are not necessarily in the wrong, but often resort to what may be considered war crimes to like to, yeah. And so, like, where is that line of like, are they just defending themselves, or at, at what point do they become the villains? And and even this, and I think they approach it in. I think it's in the same scene where Tom Paris is sad, and there's there's an early scene where she's really talking to Tom Paris about kind of why this is so personal for her, and and kind of she's taking it so hard. And then after that, then it becomes just kind of a regular Star Trek episode where we like have to do science to the thing and like outsmart the other thing and solve the problem um and i think that Mm -hmm. kind of personal aspect of it gets lost as the episode goes on but early when she's talking about when she did this thing i you know she kind of hints that like even at the time she knew what she was doing was wrong because she Mm -hmm. talks about how like she didn't tell chakotay about it because she knew that he wouldn't let her do it and then after she did it he was just like very like it really like pained her and hurt her how ups like how kind of disappointed he was in her and how um and then and then she talks about how then it kind of the missile disappeared and it didn't actually blow up this cardassian planet and she was relieved just at like that it was gone and like and then to have it come back and like see it again that it, it was just a like again i think it's it's less for her like there was just a very kind of personal this thing itself was a symbol of a mistake she had made in the past and like a painful experience for it that she thought was like kind of out of sight out of mind and now is back and she has to deal with it all over again and kind of how hard and traumatizing that is for her that i thought was a mm-hmm. you know they kind of touched on on some real emotion in that scene Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Would would you say that you kind of your you, the resonance that you got from this episode would have been like on like those personal stakes? Would you say that that's that's kind of like how you were how you were responding to it? I think I, I think it at the start it was, and then for whatever reason that seemed to kind of get forgotten. And then it like it I feel like they they had something there like emotion when she was talking about that and then mm-hmm. and then it just kind of turned into a regular Star Trek episode. And maybe I'm just saying that or like part of that was like I may have been reflecting some of myself back at me in that part of it. Mm-hmm. Um just cuz that is especially that feeling of like feeling like anything bad that happens is ultimately my fault and like feeling guilty for for things and like holding on to that guilt for a long time is like a very like that's something I personally like identify with and and recognize very easily. Um, so maybe mm-hmm. that's why that part that specific scene like really connected with me or kind of resonated. But but I do feel the the as the episode goes on, it's and again I think they they may have been trying to do that, but it just kind of becomes more well now like Bolana just has to shut down this missile and like um, becomes more about that. Yeah, I I think that 
I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's interesting because I had a definitely a different response to like what what I was finding. I agree that this is just like in the end, it's you know a a perfectly like fine episode of Star Trek. Like I I would say like overall, I was like, yeah, that was good. Uh, it wasn't like one of my favorites or anything like that, but I just kind of told Kim, uh, you know, I I just enjoy watching people who are in Starfleet be good Starfleet people and like you know volunteer to sacrifice their lives if that's what mm, needs to happen mm-hmm. you know but it not like an amazing episode but i i think and we can keep saving it but I, I kind of was thinking about it more on like the what i thought was kind of like the broader issue they were trying to talk about and the the kind of like the what they were trying to address by like having the stakes of it be this large and i don't think that that's like a more legitimate interpretation than talking about like the passing back to hunter i think that's there too i just think it's interesting that we kind of responded differently yeah that is interesting um uh yeah because because what happens is so as balana goes back over to the missile and and we kind of i guess you could like i don't know if you could call it a b-plot or just the two sides of what's going on is balana is still trying to shut down this missile and kind of playing this game of chess and going back and forth with the computer um that's running this missile and trying to either convince it that it's uh, mistaken and that it's in the Delta Quadrant and is going to attack an innocent world instead of Cardassians. And it responds by telling her that it thinks that she's been compromised and they can't trust her anymore. And this is all just a trick because it's been programmed with all these defenses to prevent the Cardassians from being able to stop it and shut it down. <laughs> and I did make a note that there, there's a part during here where it's a very... I feel like Kirk especially often resorts to the, like, talking a computer to death thing. Yeah. And it's very yeah, much what sure. it felt like a few times. Um, yeah, I thought Yeah, I thought for sure that's how it was going to end, was her logic in the computer to death, you know. Yeah. I, I was definitely getting some Kirk, Kirk vibes for sure. Yeah, because there is a point where she convinces it to kind of, like, play a hypothetical game with her of, like, let's pretend for a moment that you're wrong and you are in the Delta Quadrant, then what would that mean? And it's like, well, there would have to be an error in my like navigation computers. And she's like, why don't you just check and see if there's an error there? And then it does what I noted was like a very human thing of like, it does check. And then it just is like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Yeah. Listen, I am nomad. I am perfect. Right. Uh, and then, and meanwhile, while she's doing this, Janeway is trying to essentially plan for the eventuality that if Bolana can't stop this missile, um, how do so she contacts this planet and lets them know this missile's coming your way. We're going to try to do everything we can to stop it. And she there's a few scenes of her talking with the the leader of this planet, and she ends up deciding that the only way she can stop the missile is to essentially self destruct Voyager like in its path to, and then the explosion from that will will destroy the missile as well. And so she kind of by the climax of of the episode is has evacuated the ship, you know, has sent everybody off and and she's personally like piloting the ship and has activated it self-destruct and she's going to sacrifice her ship and herself to save this this entire planet of people that she's never met. Uh-huh. I would just say, sorry, I just want to just say too before you you kind of go too far past it that she contacts like the first minister of the planet, um the the planet is Rakosa 5 and the the uh the, the leader is named uh, Kellen, and he's played by Dan Kern, and you, you only ever see him on, like, the view screen, but I really liked his performance a lot. I thought he did a really good job, like, kind of being, like, this, like, kind of intelligent, like, concerned person who is kind of suspicious of thinks at first that, like, he's being blackmailed by, by Voyager, and then, like 
trying to fight back against the missile and then the kind of accepting that it's probably going to kill everybody and then like being and then being like realizing that like you know the the Kazon had been spreading these false rumors about Voyager and that Voyager is actually good people he kind of goes through this little like journey in just in his conversations with uh with Janeway and I I just, I don't know. It, it just, I just, I really, it was like a good little bit of writing. And I just thought, you know, even though he's like caked in makeup, I thought Dan Kern, like, yeah, just his, and appearing on like was, a, a small, like eight by 10 laptop monitor. Yeah. But he just, his, his vocal performance is doing a lot. Like he's just really, I, yeah. I just thought he did a good job. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, cause it, it does kind of play, um, a little bit into like the larger narrative of, especially these early seasons of the show where Voyager is kind of alone in this area of space where they don't have any allies and they're kind of in this like, you know, sort of conflict with the Kazon sort of always dogging them. And basically what you get from Janeway's conversations with him is that the Kazon have been kind of spreading these lies to other planets around here of how Voyager, these like terrible people that are just going through causing trouble. And so when Voyager contacts him and says, hey, there's this missile coming your way, he's just like, oh, you're attacking me and like threat, you know, trying to blackmail me of just like, we'll stop this missile, but only if you give us what we want. And and then Janeway ends up convincing him and showing him kind of through her willingness to sacrifice herself that like they actually kind of become, you know, he says like, you've made a friend today type of um, thing by the end of it. And yeah, and just, I I do agree that he, he has this kind of concern for his people and is just, you know, has been put in this difficult situation that he had like no way to be prepared for and is trying to do the best he can. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just just a little nice little. There's a lot of like like nice little bits in this episode, and I I don't know that it really congeals into something that I was like, oh, that was a great that was a great one. Uh, but it's still like definitely, it's just like it is. I was just kind of watching it and being like, eh, you know, there's just like some nice little pleasures of watching the show, even when it's not. It's not always going to be great. It still can be like, oh yeah, that yeah. was like that was good. You know? Yeah. Um. And so and so essentially, how uh what. Belana Torres does is she is going through the kind of the programming and the code of this missile and finds that there's a little piece of Cardassian programming that's left and she sort of reactivates it and then the the like her program and the Cardassian program both start trying to shut each other down because they think that the other one is like a virus within their program and and in kind of uses that essentially as a distraction to and to let her get physically get into the where exactly does she go into the reactor core the reactor core yeah. of the the missile itself and she's on, she's on a little like Cardassian Jeffrey's tube yeah kind of wiggles in there and is laying and is trying to like kind of slowly with her phaser burn through the the sort of protective plating to to blow up the the reactor and the missile like sort of recovers and it turns off the life support and is you know she's running out of oxygen and i did make a note during this part that there's the computer starts trying to bargain with her because i think it sort of knows that she's going to make it through and so it tells her i'll reactivate the life support as long as you stop like trying to burn through this thing and i wonder to myself so why didn't she just like say okay stop burning the thing and like get a couple breaths of oxygen and then just start up again yeah 
<laughs> yeah, and also like uh, can't I, this this definitely raised some questions to me about what life support is sure. uh, in these ships because like first of all like I wonder if could you just couldn't the ship just vent all the oxygen out and just make her go unconscious right away? But also also like when I hear life support on a ship usually and this and 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 Star Trek and this must not be the case because I've I've definitely been other I've definitely seen other Star Trek episodes where like people don't immediately die when life support yeah life support is always just kind of like everyone starts to get kind of sweaty and breathe heavily for like but they're like oh we have you know however many episodes like minutes are left in the episode left before yeah like we die to me life support would also include temperature controls right yeah yeah or like artificial gravity Right, well, it's, but you, you wouldn't. You don't necessarily need gravity to be alive, but certainly space is extremely cold, and you need yeah. temperature controls, and so or even like pressure, like pressure, like air yeah. pressure, right? Because like, I mean, even airplanes, like that's a big thing, is that like they like the the inside of the airplane is artificially like pressurized mm-hmm. because the the air is so thin outside. So yeah, you would think if you really completely shut down life support, it would become an immediately like much more like space than. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and yeah, so I, I'm kind of like, yeah, when they shut down life support, does that just mean that they stop making new air? And that's something else, too, that I, I just learned about this stuff that was interesting uh, is because they, they mentioned this in in uh, a Deep Space Nine episode I was watching recently, that that's how the, the, the in all these ships, the oxygen is replicated. Uh, so Really? Yeah, so they have they, they, there's like a, huh. a replicator that is responsible for replicating o- oxygen. Oxygen. I didn't know you could replicate a gas i mean i guess yeah i think think you replicate anything basically i guess yeah Uh, other than like uh like a living thing or like a like a like a like a live like a an animal you know yeah being a regular animal but like yeah the so so like does that just mean that they turn the air replicator off or like is it getting colder in there because i would think that like once you stopped making it warm in a spaceship like it would very quickly get yeah, it must, cold. right? Like, it's... yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I, I just th- this was a little, I just was thinking about that when I was watching. Uh, like, what does that mean when they say they turn the life support systems off? Yeah, that's fair. Um, and then, uh, and then, yes, yeah, she. So she kind of at the last minute is successful. She burns through the thing, and the missile um, sort of detonates in the middle of space where it doesn't hurt anybody. And the Voyager manages to beam her aboard just in time. Um, and. And they get rid of the uh, the self destruct sequence because it was yes, and the of course the self destruct sequence is down to like less than a minute, and Janeway remembers to to deactivate it. Another nice little bit of that episode too is that Janeway has everybody leave the ship except for her. They all take escape pods, but then Tuvok decides to stay, and she's like, "You don't have to do this." And he kind of like does a little like it's yeah, only like, logical. It's only logical that I would stay because just in case like you yeah you need you need like, a co pilot or whatever yeah. But really, it's just because, like, you know, she's his friend and he wants to yeah. be here with her and support her. And just, I don't know, it's just like, it's just like a sweet little thing. I just was yeah. like, oh, that's so nice. Like, but he, even though he won't admit that that's why he's doing it. They've done a really good job of this. That anytime, like, a Vulcan does something that's, like, nice or demonstrates some degree of, like, personal or emotional connection, it's just very, like, it just makes you feel really good. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like. Yeah, I'm, t- I'm talking to myself into liking this episode more like, as we talk about it. I, I didn't dislike it before, but I was kind of like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, no, it's but kind I, of, it's a fine Star Trek episode. Yeah, I but feel. there are like a lot of like little nice things about it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think I, I can kind of go kind of wheel around to what I was going to say. Well, the two things I want to talk about, one of is a shorter one, which is this, that I don't really understand why 
They, I don't think that it's really adequately explained why the Dreadnought thinks that this planet is uh, where the, it was supposed to go. Uh, because I I, I, uh, I could be wrong. Maybe Balana really was just like awful. An awful person was just like, we're just going to have it like nuke this planet. And they don't really care. Like, because like, if it gets like anywhere close to the fuel depot, it'll destroy all the fuel. That seems super overkill because they say that the, pla- that the, that the thing could basically destroy a moon, which I would assume then if it hits a planet, it wouldn't destroy the planet, but it would basically eliminate all life on the- it. Would, it would do like a, a dinosaur asteroid thing, you know? Mm, like, yeah. Just for like the, the ecological impact of that big of a explosion yeah yeah i i felt like while i was watching it that i was i was believing that it was going to like that it was going to hit like a fuel outpost that was like it wasn't on the planet itself that oh it was just like, like a, a satellite or something yeah like, a, like or a space station or yeah and so i was like well why why is it then going for this planet instead? Which maybe maybe the maybe the fuel outpost was on the planet itself. Even then, it seems like I don't know. It it it, it, it yeah. seems like not really like that. It's just like yeah, I think they well, we have s- to say that it's going to this planet, and you know, screw you. That's why. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, because then we have a story. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think they 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 make some mention of I forget if it, like the computer explains it to her or someone that like it's this planet is like the same size and like general like climate or ecosystem or whatever like it's it kind of has enough astronomical similarities to this other planet that the computer um kind of is convinced that it's the same planet and that um uh and that even though it's like not where it thinks it's supposed to that's probably just some basically i think she the the problem is that she programmed it to be incredibly paranoid yeah (laughs) well okay so that's that's actually that's the other thing i wanted to talk about is that I, the thing that I always kept on thinking about while I was watching this was, have you ever heard of a man named Stanislav Petrov? I don't think so. Stanislav Petrov, I think, is arguably one of the most important people of the last uh, 100 years because he is, he was a, in, in, he was a lieutenant colonel with the Soviet Air Defense Forces in 1983. He was in like a, a nuclear, uh, like early warning uh, satellite bunker um, in the Soviet Union in September 20, uh, September 26, 1983. And so he was monitoring these satellites, which were an early warning system to to uh, determine if the United States was 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 sending like a uh, a nuclear strike against the Soviet Union. And on that day, the he 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 received multiple notifications that the 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 United States had launched missiles at the Soviet Union and he did not he did not like tell his superiors or like he didn't he didn't like report it that that, that was happening because he believed based on context that they were false alarms but like the protocol though was that if the the uh if the US had had launched stuff and that it was picked if 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 the missiles were picked up by the early warning satellites by the by the Soviets that the, the protocol was this that the Soviets would launch their own missiles at the United States because that was like the policy back then of mutually assured destruction and so basically if he had followed what he was supposed to do you and I probably wouldn't be here like humanity might not be here anymore you know like 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 we, we that would have been World War three because this system, screwed up and someone like listened to the system and yeah. i i was just thinking about this because like basically like that's what she has like she has like like that that's what this thing is is it's like a nuclear weapon um 
You know, yeah. it's, it says it's like it's like there's like a, a thousand kilograms or something of antimatter and a thousand kilograms of matter that you know, when reacted would, would destroy like a small moon. And that I, I felt like there was a lot in this episode, like like the way that she keeps on interacting with the system where it kind of keeps on coming up with, it, it, it keeps on coming up with like these reasons for like why she's wrong and like it has to keep on doing the thing it's doing. I was really just thinking about that and how like, it's about that we, we put these systems in place that we think we have control over and we kind of like make them paranoid and we make them intelligent and we make them try to solve all these problems that we're in fact creating. But like mm-hmm. you know, we 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 think we 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 are knowledgeable about this stuff. But like we you know, in this case, you know, if this had happened, it would have been it would have been the Soviets' fault. You know, and this if 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 this had happened, it would have been Bolana's right. fault. Even though in theory, like they were, you know, they yeah, were, that you can like point it just like oh well, it was a computer like systems issue. Um, yeah, and, and, that it's still you know that she, she and like in this case like in like in real life like the Soviet Union they they could not control the unforeseen like collateral damage to their actions it's only like the illusion of control and 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 like I, I think about it's not even just like stuff like this I really just made me think about like, a lot of like nuclear proliferation things like have you ever heard about that uh, I'm gonna look this up right in a quick while we're talking but have you ever heard about that John Wayne movie where like a ton of people who were in the movie died of cancer no I haven't it's called The Conqueror, and it's um, it, it's a 1956 movie, and it is the movie was shot in St. George, Utah, which is downwind, uh, just a little bit of uh, where they did a bunch of the nuclear testing in Nevada. Hmm. It's a, it's a, it's 137 miles downwind of of the of the nas- the Nevada National Security Site, and it, it received the it says it's according to Wikipedia it received the brunt of nuclear fallout from testing active in this uh, period. And so they the the federal government told Howard Hughes who produced this movie that there was no you know that that the test posed no hazard to the public health, but that was not true. Uh, a, a ton of people who were in this movie, including maybe John Wayne, John Wayne had died of lung cancer, so. You know, he could have it could have been smoking, too. But like like the director died of, of cancer seven years later, uh, a bunch of other people like that of like kidney cancer or uh, lung cancer or throat cancer or various things, huh. a, a, a skin cancer. Like there's a ton of people in this movie who and, and I assume like just people in the community, like who didn't who didn't work there, just people who lived there suffered from this stuff. Wow. And, you know, because like we were trying to make ourselves more secure, but like really what we were doing was just like hurting ourselves and having the potential to hurt other people. Yeah. And I just really was like thinking about that stuff. You know, the, the thing is, too, is that you look back at like what she was going to do, which was to like blow up a planet and like what the Cardassians were trying to do when they were sending the missile their way. It was never justifiable anyway. You know, like the. the cl- yeah. Like, oh, wow. We really we really escaped being attacked by this terrible weapon because it, it was it was initially a missile that got sent against the Maquis. Yeah. And they were just like, we have no way to stop it. What are we going to do? And it ended up like through some kind of fluke or mistake, like it didn't blow up and they captured it instead and then their response was oh well let's just do the same thing to the Cardassians yeah and it just I thought that just that that I think is the thing that was the most effective about the episode to me is just hmm. that it really does I think like the more you think about it, the more you're like hey how awful the the mechanics of the modern first world military industrial complex are and, and like and specifically this how awful like the mechanics of nuclear proliferation are yeah. And 
and how and how immoral it is and how potentially terrible it is. And then, yeah, just thinking about how we've just kind of been lucky. We've been lucky that, like, this is never, you know, yeah. we've, we've been lucky that, like, after the United States killed a bunch of innocent people in, in Japan at the end of <laughs> World War II, that, that, yeah, that, that, that it hasn't happened again, and but worse, you know, like, because yeah. now the, the weapons no, it are is, way it more is powerful than the A-bomb. Kind of was. crazy, some of the, like, stories that you read about all the, like, there's, the number of times of like close calls where something almost led to uh, like a nuclear disasters. Mm-hmm. Um, like there were, because there, I remember I read a few things about, there was one point where Nixon had this plan to like, basically there was this operation where they just, there was always a plane in the sky, like a bomber in the sky that was either flying to Russia or flying back carrying a nuclear bomb. So like in case our missile supply got like preemptively destroyed we'd at least be able to drop a bomb from this plane and i think like at least three of these planes like crashed or like accidentally dropped their bomb or something like that and it just never none of the times did like the explosives just never went off yeah. Um, and, and like there's the cuban missile crisis i mean like it's yeah people like humans are too dumb to have this <laughs> act the access to this technology like it's you know yeah yeah i guess that yeah that is i didn't think about that aspect of of this episode but it's true it is kind of one of those where like the the war machine takes on kind of its own independent like starts running independently of whatever intention it was created with and the the danger that that presents yeah um so that that was that was like my thing it was just like it it made me very solemn to think about Hmm. like the implications like the real life implications of like what this episode is talking about which is i think ultimately like even if the episode didn't really 100 percent congeal for me like i think that like you know good star trek is supposed to make you think about that stuff yeah so i you know i would say mission accomplished in that in that aspect of it anyway um, that's all I wanted to talk about, though, with the episode. I, you know, again, I think, you know, not not amazing, but definitely got some good yeah. stuff. You know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be one I would recommend skipping or anything if you're watching Voyager. Um, yeah, that's fair. Uh, you have anything else? Uh, I don't really think so. The only other thing I made a a little note of, and I, and it maybe a little undeserved, was that the uh, the password to like activate the self destruct sequence on the entire ship is apparently like four characters long. <laughs> um, the Janeway is just like activate self-destruct sequence and it's like clearances Janeway 0410 and it's like self-destruct activated and I'm sure it's I'm sure it's actually like I think there's a is there a next generation episode where they kind of talk about this where it's actually like voice locked like it recognizes her yeah. specific voice because I think there's isn't there a TNG where data like records the captain's voice to yeah. steal the ship or something like that but yeah I just watched a, I just watched a T-Space 9 where they had to get ready to self-destruct a ship and it was it was voice locked and it was voice locked and coded and like hand like they that use like a handprint hmm. too so but yeah it does seem a little a little bit extreme and like possibly dangerous that apparently the captain can just like tell the ship out loud be like self-destruct now and the ship's like okay yeah <laughs> yeah because i i because they didn't have uh she didn't have another person uh no like tuvok she, was there but i don't think he gave any like confirmation or um yeah like most of most of the time i feel like those things have some sort of like two factor like two people have to like yeah, lock like, in at the same time or, like the two keys thing you yeah. know in the in like a nuclear submarine because yeah because i think i because i think Riker like has to sign off and then not yeah just watching that episode of d space nine kira also had to sign off uh yeah. on that one but no oh. yeah she she's 
I mean, maybe they got rid of that after because because she, her her first officer is a maquis. Yeah, that's lady. true. I guess the ship's original first officer is dead. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I think that's all we had, though. So you know, thank everybody for listening. We are part of the Kaleidoscope Media Network, and you can check out our three sister shows on the network. There's the Here's Johnny podcast, which is about horror media. That's not how science works. Explores the intersection of science and pop culture, and Wizard Studies talks about various Harry Potter topics. Uh, as for us, our episodes come out every other Sunday, and our next episode is going to be about First Flight, which is a the season two, episode twenty four of Star Trek Enterprise. First time we've done an Enterprise episode in a while. Oh, wow, yeah. And yeah, um, you know, in the meantime, uh, you can go follow us on Twitter at Contracts. You can email us at uh, Out of Contracts, uh, or sorry, uh, you can email us at Contracts at gmail.com, or you can visit our website at outofcontracts.podbean.com. Uh, we, our show comes out every other Sunday, so we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Although listeners of this podcast may find themselves brave for having withstood classic episodes like the body switching, the enemy within, or the gothic witchy horror of Cat's Paw, we at the Here's Johnny podcast like to dive even deeper into the genre of horror. That's right, Justin, and even though you really dated yourself naming off two super old episodes of Star Trek, here on the Here's Johnny podcast we review video games and films from all over the horror genre, looking at different subgenres like vampires, aliens, and zombies and we compare the similarities and differences between the media. We also have discussion-based episodes, which range from interviews with people in the industry, deep dives into directors, and their filmography or analysis into video game timelines. Yeah, that fictional history of Resident Evil was quite the doozy. But be sure to check us out. You can find us on any podcast site. We have new episodes every Monday, and our website is here'sjohnnypodcast.wixsite.com backslash horror. And on there, you can find links to our episode feed, all our social media. It is all there. And remember, in space, no one can hear you scream. And stay scary. <laughs>